All right, turn to Matthew, if you will, chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 13, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, if you look at the history of Christianity, um, the Christians traditionally have been the trend setters. They've been the trend setters. And really what we see is, is Christians don't set, set out to set a trend. Um, rather, what we see is when Christians' minds and hearts are renewed and transformed, and they start living out the Bible, then the world sees that, and sometimes is repulsed, sometimes is, is amazed, sometimes is pushed away, but sometimes is drawn to it. But they cannot help but deny the good works that believers do. They can't do it. You know, it was Christians, thousands and thousands of years, slavery existed. Thousands and thousands of years. And through the hundreds of years or so, when Christianity came about, many theologians spoke against it. Now, some didn't, but many did. It took thousands of years to get slavery repealed and outlawed. And it was the work of many people, but probably the catalyst for it was a man named William Wilberforce in England. And he fought ardently. He was a politician, used his influence in politics, and repeatedly, every year, would basically introduce some type of bill dealing with the abolition of the slave trade. This one man, God used mightily. And you know what's interesting? This is just more of a side note. He was this close to not going into politics. He really was. In fact, he really felt like his heart was so on fire for the Lord that he should go into the ministry. And so it took someone else reasoning with him and talking to him and said, God has called you to this profession, and that's where you need to be. It's kind of interesting. That man could have been that close to doing something that many of us would commend today, and probably should. Um, but the Lord had a call on him specifically for politics, and the Lord used him mightily. You know, orphanages, they weren't just started by the early church. It really was the early church. There was no buildings, uh, but the early church, um, you know, the Romans had a, a horrible view of the preciousness of life, and many, many infants, especially if they were deformed or disabled or girls, would be abandoned at a certain place in each city. What would the Christians do? They would go rescue those kids. They would go get them. And really... It was The orphanage was the houses of the members themselves. And so they would just get together. Okay, we have you know these three kids. One of the families would volunteer to take one. Another family would volunteer to take another. And that was the orphanages. But then, as that grew, it was the Christians who started the early orphanages. Same thing with adoption agencies internationally. Even local or national adoption agencies, many of them have Christian foundations and still are Christians. Um, the recent ruling on uh, same-sex marriage, 
um, many non-believing state officials are worried about what that's going to do to the adoption agencies in their state. Because if the adoption agencies in their state that are Christians would cease to function, the state could not handle all the foster kids in its care. And so they realize, right, ideas have consequences. And if these um, agencies, and many of them already have, refuse to do same-sex marriage adoptions, let same-sex couples um, adopt kids, then they're probably going to be pushed out of business. Health care was primarily given by the church. Why? Because believers took seriously what James said, look after orphans and widows in their distress. They put it into action. Hospitals today, I mean, you know, most hospitals have the name of what? St. Luke, St. John, St. Mary, they were started by, by believers. Uh, back, you know, hundreds of years ago, if you got sick, uh, even your friends sometimes would abandon you. If you had a disease, you'd be pushed aside. You'd be left to die. It was the Christians who came to rescue the hurting. What about education? Most schools initially in America began as strongly Christian institutions. Even Harvard itself was started, if you can believe it or not, by the Puritans. Within six years of their coming to the Massachusetts Bay, they set aside 400 pounds to start a school. And that school was Harvard. Here's what they say. This was one of the first rules adopted. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17.3. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And it's um, somewhat ironic today, even many institutions today, their mottos, some of them have been changed, but their mottos still have a Christian um, theme to it. If you look at them, they'll... They'll have their little Latin phrase, and um, I mean, it's kind of funny because their Latin phrase has something to do with the gospel, or it's some quote of scripture. Why? Because the people that founded those institutions of higher learning were believers that knew that Christ transformed all of culture, including learning. The status of women. If you just think briefly about Jesus' interactions with women, it completely cut against the grain of society at his time. Completely cut against the grain. His, just his interaction with the woman at the well, that was pretty scandalous. His interactions and his friendship with Mary and Martha, unheard of at that time. And on and on we could go with examples in Jesus' life. The New Testament epistles mention a number of prominent ladies. Lydia, Priscilla, Phoebe, just to name a few. And these are just the tangible things that the church has done. Things that we can, we can look at and see. Much more could be said about the virtues that Christianity has spread primarily in the Western Hemisphere. And I heard earlier this week uh, a theologian use the term talking about the church being either a thermostat or a thermometer. Where the thermostat is like the trend setter, right? It's that here's this is the temperature, right? This is what is going to be. What does the thermometer do? figures out what the temperature is, and then adjusts to it. And what we have seen, and what's going on right now, is 
many individual churches are acting more like thermometers. What's the, what's the temperature of the culture? That's what we need to adjust to. We're supposed to be the trendsetters. We're supposed to be those thermostats. Here's where the temperature is, all right? Follow us. Get in line. So we have a choice. We can pull out of society, or we can stay in society. But honestly, there's really not an option, is we can't pull out of society. That goes against what we're called to be. We're called to be the salt and the light. And, and while that might be attractive to some of you, we are simply not given that option. We're just not. Um, some of us don't completely pull out of society, um, but we end up arranging our lives so that our contact with unbelievers is minimal. Again, that's not being salt and light. We are the salt. We are the light. And you cannot preserve that which you're not in contact with. Salt only works when it is in contact with the thing it needs to preserve. And we can't illuminate if we're not shining in the darkness, right? Here's a flashlight, right? Now, it can kind of brighten things. I got it on a pretty high setting, but if I'm like, oh, wow, look at that vent right there on the wall. Well, guess what? You can see that without the flashlight. If I'm like, oh, look at Justice. He's back. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you can see that, right? But if we turned off the lights, and Lauren's going to do that, it makes a little bit difference, right? We can start to use this flashlight to shine a little bit better. We can see things. But if, even if we keep this on, and I put it in my pocket, is it doing any good? No. You can probably see my shirt. If I put it in my pocket here, right? You can see it right there, right? It's sticking out. But does it do any good? Does it illuminate anything? No. We have to let it shine. All right? We have to let it shine in the darkness. Thank you, Lauren. And so, you know what? It's awesome. You know, you're shining at your Bible study. You're shining at your life group. You're shining during here in worship. Great. You're just shining away. But you've got to shine out there where the darkness is. It's easy to shine in the light, right? Because you can even kind of go unnoticed a little bit. It's pretty challenging to shine in the darkness. But that's where it's most needed. And that's where we need to shine. So this means for us cultural engagement at all levels. Look at 1 Peter 2. Here's what 1 Peter 2 says, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All right, so we are sojourners. Your version might say aliens or strangers. We're exiles, right? This is not our home, ultimately. It's not. I'm looking forward to my real home more and more each day, right? But this is where God has placed us, all right? We are his ambassadors, is what the scriptures say. We have been sent by him to this place. So this is our temporary home. It goes on. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look, nothing in this passage suggests retreat. 
Notice that it says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. It actually just assumes that you will be around unbelievers on a regular basis. And there are times we're told to flee, but you know what the command is? Jesus said, flee to the next city. Not flee to the desert, not flee to some barren region where you can hide out, not flee to the caves. He said, flee to the next city. So, you know, if we pulled out completely, this country would change drastically rather quickly. I still believe that Christians are acting as the salt and light. There is a a preservation that is still occurring. And if we pulled out, if we ceased from all secular involvement, even apart from our jobs, we stay with our jobs, but ceased all secular involvement, uh, it wouldn't take long for this nation to become even more depraved than it already is. And it wouldn't be pretty. But we are the salt. And we need to continue to be the change agents in society. Until Jesus comes back, this is what he has us doing. It's really that simple. But here's the thing. It has to start with us. It has to start with us. What do I mean? We can't be a preserver if we ourselves are not being preserved. What do I mean by that? Well, it's like Jesus said. If salt is no longer salty... What good is it? And if we're not acting like the salt that Jesus says we are, the implication that Jesus is saying is, is like, what good are we as believers? So if our life doesn't reflect Christian virtues, I mean, how can we expect to preserve the culture? We're ending up just like it. And that's what we see happening. You know, I had like a light bulb moment or an aha moment, whatever you want to call it, a number of years ago when I was living at my first house, um, realizing what I really needed to show my neighbors. And I was like, I I was thinking about this. I've been chewing on it for a while. You know, and I was like, you know, my neighbor probably really doesn't care what songs I do or don't listen to, what movies I do or don't go to. I mean, as an unbeliever, he probably just, I mean, he could care less what music I listen to, right? He could care less what movies I see. Um, do those things really make a difference to him? Because I'm like, well, how do I want my neighbors to, to look at me? How do I want my neighbors to define me? Do, is that how I want to be defined? Oh, Mike doesn't listen to this music. Mike doesn't go to those movies. Well, no, really. I want him to define me by my interactions with him. How do I treat him? I want him to see... Christian virtues in me spilling out and be being poured out on him. I want him to define me by my relationship with him. What does he see between us? That's going to be the greatest witness to him. It really is. So, are, are certain songs maybe not appropriate to listen to? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have my list, right? I got my movies that I don't see. But that's not what I want to define me. Um, we, we can have all those lists and, and we can be just like the Pharisees and have everything lined up. But if we don't have that love, then we are that clanging symbol. And they will not be attracted to us at all. They will be repelled because they will see the Pharisaism in it and they won't want a part of it. 
They need to see the Christian virtues in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what they need to see. And they don't just need to see it from a distance. They need to see it as we interact with them in our relationships with them. So they, they should be the ones that, man, if something's going wrong on the block, they got an issue, who are they going to think of? If they have to turn to a neighbor, who's it going to be? Now, I'm just as guilty because some of my neighbors wouldn't answer me. All right? But what kind of witness do we want them to be? What kind of witness do we want us to be to them? We are the salt and the light, right? Here's the salt shaker. Does it do any good in the container? No. no. All right? I'm, oh, I'm going to apply it to myself, right? That's kind of how we think. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting in the society there. Right? Look at that. I'll check it out. I'm going to get here on this little table right by the thorns. Does it do any good in there? No, it's got to be, it's got to be poured out, right? You got to sprinkle a little bit of it. You got to sprinkle a little bit of it. It's got to get outside of its container to do its work. And we have to pour ourselves out a little bit. Are we pouring ourselves out like the Lord wants us to? The other thing we need to do is we need to shine the light. Don't hide the light. You know, if you think about it, you know being called the light, and you guys maybe have realized this before, but it just dawned on me as I was studying for this sermon, and I thought it was pretty cool, so I'm going to share it with you. Look at John real quick. John chapter 1. It says in John chapter 1, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Think about that for a second. So Jesus is the true light. Amen? Amen. Right? But here, Jesus is calling us the light. That is a high compliment. He's the true light, but then he turns around and says, you are the light of the world. Just like Jesus was the true light, then he's basically telling his disciples, hey guys, guess what? You're the light too. How are you going to shine that? I mean, that just kind of blew my mind as I was thinking about that. I mean, he, he gives us and calls us the light. I mean, that's crazy. Guys, we've had it easy in America for quite some time, and that's changing. Uh, you've probably saw or heard of uh, that video of Planned Parenthood this week, illegally selling aborted babies' body parts. If you haven't seen the video, you need to watch it. And what amazed me, I guess it shouldn't have amazed me, but what kind of did amaze me is that a few pro-choice senators... Um, came out and, and tried to, you know, uh, shush away the video, explain it away, say it was it was doctored. And to which the reporters were like, "Have you seen the video?" No. Oh, okay. Nothing like talking in ignorance. One congressman wanted to investigate the organization. No, not Planned Parenthood. The organization that made the video. What? I mean, you talk about redirecting the focus. That's insanity. But that's what happens. The media and others try to shift the focus off the real issue. 
And this happens all the time with ethical debates. Someone gets caught, right, and tries to worm their way out and shift the focus elsewhere. This happens with Islam. You guys remember the video that came out around 9-11 a few years ago? Yeah? This guy made this video about Islam, and then what, what ends up happening, supposedly because of the video? These riots break out, the American embassy is stormed, four Americans die, and what ends up, the truth being, the video was not the cause. But what did people at the time say? I shouldn't have made that video. That video cost four Americans their lives. That's not true. That video didn't cost four Americans their lives. The people that killed the four Americans is what cost them their lives. If a kid goes into uh, his room, his bedroom, and takes a Sharpie marker and draws all over the wall, and then his dad comes in and flies into a rage and murders his son, do we fault the son or the dad? We say, oh, the the kid should have known that his dad had an anger problem. No. We lay the blame where it's supposed to be, on the criminal, on the murderer. That only makes sense. (laughs) Murdering is never an excusable crime. doesn't matter what happened. And here's the thing. You know, you can make the nicest, kindest video critiquing Islam, and it's going to come under attack. That is just the truth. And regularly, you will see various political or even religious leaders calling for peace among religions. What religions are fighting one another? No, seriously. What religions are fighting one another? None. No religions are fighting one another. So what are they trying to get at? What are they trying to apply? They're they're trying to apply that religions are at war. That's not true. There's one religion at war. Islam. That's the truth. You um, see fighting going on. It is completely one-sided. You don't see Jews out there going on a rampage, killing particular religious sects. You don't see Hindus doing that. You don't see Buddhists doing that. You don't see Christians doing that. You see Muslims doing that. Not all Muslims. I understand. You do too. But some Muslims. The media won't say that. They try to frame the discussion in a softer and gentler way. So what is our response going to be? How are we going to handle that? We have to keep preserving what we can of the society. I'd like to see us be trendsetters again. I believe we can. You know, we're not that far away from being back in the first century. We're outnumbered. We're looked down upon. Uh, About the only thing we're missing is a full-on persecution. And it looks like we're headed that way. But look at what believers did in that first century. They were the trendsetters. They were the salt. They were the light. And it made a difference. It made a difference. It made a difference for me. I'm here. It made a difference for you. You're here. So we can be outnumbered. We can be looked down upon. But if we are the salt and the light, we can preserve what God wants us to preserve. We can shine where God wants us to shine. Listen, I'm not looking to save this nation. But I'm looking to save people in this nation. And the apostles, they were not looking to save Rome. But they were looking to save Romans and the subjects to Rome. 
And that's where our hearts need to be, is to save those that we can. Revival, I'd love to see a revival break out. But you know what? We're not going to see revival out there if we don't see revival right here in our hearts. And Hannah gave us a really great exhortation this morning. I hope we received that and listened to it because it was, it was truth all the way. And believers have lived for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, without living in a Christian nation. And they made it. And they did fine. And they were persecuted. But they made it. They persevered. Look at 1 Peter 4. Verse 17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I remember I read that when I first got saved, and I was like, oh my goodness, that is one of the scariest verses I've ever read in the Bible. I mean, seriously, think about it. Look at what he says. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So we're all crying, judgment, judgment. God's like, I'm going to start with you. Are you ready for that? You you want judgment? Well, it's going to start first with the household of God. Change needs to start first in the household of God. I know some of you are thinking, wow, Pastor Bond doesn't usually talk about current events so much in his sermons. First, what I preach on, I hope, is culturally relevant, even if it's not discussing current events. Um, But second, current events... Um, should not dictate what is preached from the pulpit. It really shouldn't. Um, The culture doesn't set the agenda for the pulpit. The Lord does. And so hopefully, you know, Pastor Vaughn and I, we're being wise and discerning with what to preach, and um, it would be foolish just to flip on the news and come up with my sermon topic for the week, right? It would. Um, At times, it needs to be directly addressed, and at other times, it can be alluded to. But... um, you know, we're trying to be prayerfully led about what to preach on, and sometimes we'll hit it straight on, like maybe today, uh, the abortion issue and things like that, um, same-sex marriage. That's what we're doing pretty much every Friday uh, that we have the summer teaching series. Um, these things need to be discussed. They really do. So, um, to wrap up, here's the thing. When Jesus says, you are the salt, you are the light, he's actually talking in what's called the indicative, all right? He's not giving us a command there. There's no command. It's a statement of fact. You are the salt. You are the light. So, um, what does that mean? It means what it says it means. We're the salt. The question is not whether we're salt or not. It's really whether of how salty we are and how good of a job we're going to do being salt. The question is not whether, are we light? No. There's no command. Be light. Oh, Lord, I'm not being light. Please help me out. No. We are the light. The question is, how good of a job are we going to be shining that light? What will we do with the fact that we are light? We need to start shaking out that salt that's inside us a little more, and we need to start shining that light that perhaps we've kept hidden away a little bit more. And look, may it one day be said about believers that we, again, 
are setting the trend. Not because we want to just set the trend, but because we're being the salt and the light. Look, I believe if abortion is going to end, it's going to be through believers. Because God delights to do amazing things through his children. And if human trafficking is going to end, it's going to be through believers. Because God delights to do things through his children. He wants to use us to accomplish his ends. He loves to make look the wise things of the world foolish. And to use simpletons like us to make all the geniuses out there look stupid. Why? Well, how could that church possibly have accomplished that? And they're just, how'd that happen? God. God. That's the explanation. So, act like the salt that you are, and shine like the light that you are. Let's pray.